Good afternoon and welcome to the Critical Criminology Podcast for April 2nd, 2021. I'm your host, Noah Sweeting. How is everybody doing today? Today, we're going to be discussing the topic of overrepresentation of the Indigenous population in the Canadian criminal justice system. Not only this, but I'm going to try to convince you that this problem all stems from the Canadian government and how they handle this population. What I mean by this is a common misconception is someone has committed a crime, so they have to do the time. But you need to think critically about this issue. But the history behind the population and how they've been marginalized and repressed and so on for over 200 years. But before I get into any arguments, I first must educate the listeners on the issue at hand. The overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the criminal justice system is an issue that has shown to be that has been becoming gradually worse and worse over the last 25 years in Canada. In fact, the overall incarceration rate in Canada continues to decline year by year. According to Statistics Canada, while the national incarceration rate has fluctuated over the past 25 years, it has declined every year over the last five years. So why is it that the overall national incarceration has declined every year over the last five years, but the indigenous people in the criminal justice system has increased more and more over the last, not only five years, but the last 20 years. How bad is it really? Well, according to a submission to the House of Commons of Canada by author John McKay, He stated that Indigenous people make up just 4% of Canadian population, but account for nearly 23% of the country's incarcerated population. This report was released in 2018, and other studies suggest that this number is even higher now. This figure is even more daunting for the female Indigenous population, with close to 30% of all women incarcerated being indigenous. I'll give everybody a minute to think about that number. Just They've just made up 4% of the Canadian population, but close to 23% of the federal population that is currently incarcerated. This is a problem that needs to be discussed more. But for this main idea of this podcast, I want to discuss more about trying to convince you guys about what really caused this problem. And not only what, but who caused this problem. And I'm going to try to convince you guys that it was actually the Canadian government with the blatant racism, the intergenerational trauma, and the fact in the low economic, low socioeconomic status that they implemented on the indigenous population. 
But before that can be brought up, we must first go back roughly almost 200 years to when this distrust uh, began between the people, between the indigenous people and the Canadian government. But back then, it was just the European colonizers. This started back in the Royal Proclamation of 1763. As discussed by Burroughs in his paper from 1997, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 was a treaty between the First Nations and the British, which laid out land controls within Canada. What was thought to be a fair treaty in the eyes of the First Nations turned to be false, as Burroughs argued that the British acted in bad faith as they add provisions to the treaty, allowing for the First Nations to occupy the land, but the British actually having actual ownership and final say about this land. This early example paints a picture about what the relationships actually like between the indigenous population and the Canadian government. It stems back almost 200 years, and the mistrust started all the way back then and there's only there's only hundreds more of examples and a few of that I'm going to lay out in the next part which I'm going to discuss racism so when discussing about someone being prosecuted and being a member of a prison population the first step towards that is being charged with the crime Who charges people with crime? It's the police and the police department. It has been recognized that racism towards the indigenous population plays a significant role regarding the actions within the police force. An easy example of this is highlighted in Catherine Reinberg's uh, paper, titled The Starlight Tours. In this paper, she lays out about Saskatchewan's police department and what they participated in what was called Starlight Tours. What this was, was they would pick up indigenous men and sometimes women and they would handcuff them and then bring them out to a very remote place and basically just leave them there. A lot of times, these indigenous people were not dressed for the weather. This weather was like minus 40 degrees Celsius, according to Reinberg, Reifberg. And they were just basically left there to die. Because they would have to walk sometimes 30 kilometers back into town with like little to no clothing. This is just a clear, this is one clear example of blatant racism by the police department and how if you think about how can you trust people how can you trust a department to look out for your best safety when they have a history of doing this to people who who look just like you another example is discussed by Paul Mate in 2016 about the various cases of murdered and missing indigenous women. In their paper, they discuss how indigenous people or indigenous women in general who are murdered and kidnapped are investigated very differently than other people that are victims of the same crime. 
They go on to further discuss about Canada's history regarding missing and murdered Indigenous women and how they rely heavily on victim blaming. This is an act of the police force and the government both simultaneously and blatantly blaming the fate of these women on their own behalf. Postmate goes on to include that they blame the women for staying up too late and participating in certain activities or associating themselves with the wrong crowd. You never see this with any other race or population. Instead of trying to solve the crime, they're personally victimizing and victim blaming these indigenous women for being the wrong crowd when they should be trying to find the people who did this to them. This example just shows the blatant racism that occurs occurs towards the indigenous population. These examples show that there's a clear prejudice and discrimination towards the indigenous population. So what ha- what ends up happening is by hyper-focusing on the indigenous community, law enforcement has a higher chance of incarcerating this demographic. The direct impact of racism allows for indigenous people to receive higher surveillance and become the main target of law enforcement. These racist objectives demonstrate the cause for indigenous people to be overrepresented in the criminal justice system. This brings me to my next point of intergenerational trauma. This is a concept that has been popularized in the last 20 plus years as the impact of a century worth of discrimination and abuse has begun to be brought to the surface for the indigenous population. The relationship between indigenous people and the federal justice system can be linked to socio-political contexts. Canada's past history with indigenous people and their land is anything but clean. Colonization has led to a lifelong impact that still holds true today. It is a it is a general assumption by society that actions of colonialism are long past their days of effect. Yet this is just simply incorrect. Colonialism is still is still having its effects felt today towards indigenous people that continue to cause discrimination and prejudice. Current research has confirmed that there are still ties between colonialism and the penal system, as outlined by Sartran in 2019. These findings are extremely significant as they represent the theme that Indigenous people are still facing repercussions from colonization. One of the main contributors, contributors... of this trauma is the issue of residential schools and the impact that it has not only on the forced participants of this of these schools but also the following generations before i can proceed any further i cannot just assume that everybody knows what residential schools are because they've only really become like public knowledge in the past 20 years so as defined by Bresca in 2018, this was a place where beliefs related to traditional indigenous spirituality and culture were prohibited. Page 272. 
Indigenous people were ripped from their homes without the permission of their caregivers and forced to abide by the rules of the Canadian government. This happened for over a hundred years and the impact is still being felt today. Children were ripped from their homes and were told that their whole livelihood and their outlooks on life were wrong. In addition to this, if they spoke out against the teachers and priests in these schools, they were severely punished, sorry, punished, often in very physical ways. Okay, now that we know what they are, can we just take a second to really understand what that means? Imagine, imagine when you were a child, say like eight years old, you were ripped from your home, from your parents, and they couldn't do anything, and forced to go thousands of kilometers away, not knowing anybody with these people, and then everything that you grew up knowing, you just couldn't do anymore. You had to abide by these rules or you were punished. Imagine the uproar that would happen today in Canadian society. But because it's the indigenous population, it just slipped under the rug. Imagine the level of trauma that not only physical physical harm can have on someone, but add on mental warfare that these children were put through it's just a recipe for disaster. The trauma that stems from a residential school impacts the lives of everyone involved, including the lives of the attendees' future children. Another unfortunate example of the trauma that was caused by the Canadian government that ultimately led to the overrepresentation of the indigenous population in Canadian Canadian prison systems sorry that's a mouthful <laughs> sorry another clear example was what was coined the 60 scoop as defined by paradis in 2020 the 60 scoop was a period of child welfare when over 20,000 first nations inuit and metis children were taken from their homes and communities to be fostered or adopted into mostly white middle-class families or institutions the trauma that stems from this is clearly evident as the indigenous people that were impacted lose the sense of self and just lose their whole livelihood they had to like they were uprooted from their homes and placed in a new family and ha- they had no say in the matter. Both of these examples of the trauma were implemented by the Canadian government. We know the lasting effects that trauma can have on someone's lives. Not only this, but a whole population. So this is clearly something something that has led to the overrepresentation of the indigenous population in the criminal justice system as a trauma as trauma can clearly and has been proven to derail someone's life these impacts are still being felt today as the last residential school only closed in like 1995 i believe it was so that's that's like just over less than 20 years ago the mental toll that so a place like that will would take on someone, not only from would put it on them, but their children is just insurmountable.
So far, we've talked about the racism that the government and police forces have against the indigenous community that leads to the overrepresentation. And now we've talked about the intergenerational trauma that stems from residential schools, 60 Scoop. And these are just two examples of over 150, close to 200 years of trauma that has been caused by the Canadian government. These examples lead to what is a term that is called socioeconomic status. Now, I know know that not everybody knows what this term means, but it's pretty simple. Socioeconomic status is just basically the standing or a more known term is the class. Just the standing of a group in society. So due to the racism and the intergenerational trauma, one can probably guess that the low the socioeconomic status of the indigenous people are pretty low. So what tends to happen is because of the theme that was discussed earlier, the intergenerational trauma, what often happens is this trauma is it builds up. And when not discussed or like or properly fixed, this trauma builds up inside of you. So what often happens is a lot of self-medicating tactics are used by indigenous people to distract distract them from the repercussions that stem from colonization. Unfortunately, a lot of times the self-medicating tactics include drugs and alcohol, which often leads to the life of low socioeconomic status to support this problem. Individuals that suffer with impairment issues are often an easy target of law enforcement and criminalization in Canada. Due to the population of Indigenous people dealing with intergenerational trauma is fairly large, fairly large. Criminalization of this population is a far too frequent occurrence that continues to happen, thus leading to the inequality of over-representation of the Indigenous population in Canadian prisons. I know that's a lot to take in, so I'm going to kind of summarize what I, what I just said. So because of the trauma that was caused by the Canadian government and the Canadian government still not doing anything to try to help fix the trauma, the Indigenous population are left to deal with this trauma on their own. And often what happens, this, is, this trauma is just too gruesome and horrible to deal with on their own. So they often proceed to use self-medicating tactics to, to try to deal with this trauma, trauma, which often include drugs and alcohol, which, they are, which then they become easy targets for criminalization. In addition to this, low socioeconomic status can also explain the over-incarceration of this population as due to the government essentially neglecting the indigenous population after colonization, many indigenous people were forced to live in low-income neighborhoods or what were, ter- what were coined the term reserves. And these places are very often very low-income. 
Low-income communities are often very riddled with crime, thus, lo, thus, sorry, thus leading to members of that community being easy targets for criminalization. Therefore, to summarize that part, due to the effects that of intergenerational trauma and the racism. Low socioeconomic status were basically f- given to the indigenous population. And this low socioeconomic status often is associated with criminalization and often leads to criminalization. So, with all this said, I want to kind of come full circle and explain why all this information is useful to you. It has to be remembered that Crime is a social construction made by and what this what I mean by this is a co- social construction is something that is made by somebody in society like a government for example and then this object or event is then adopted by the people in that society to so say I'm the government and I say wearing sandals past 7 p.m. is illegal. That is now law, right? This is that that's somebody making this law, meaning crime is socially constructed, meaning that all laws are very subjective. And different laws can be used to target different populations, like the indigenous population in Canada. My goal for this podcast was to just educate the listeners to know that just because someone is persecuted and put in jail for a crime, you don't have the whole story. It's not simple black and white that they did they did the crime, so they needed to just shut up and do the time. There's a variety of different factors that can play into play into why that person is in the position they are. Factors that they can't control themselves, such as blatant racism against them, intergenerational trauma stemming back 200 years before they were even born, and their low socio socioeconomic status. And by pointing out these factors, I just wanna I just wanted everyone to realize that these factors stem from the Canadian government. The Canadian government is responsible for this overrepresentation of the indigenous population in the criminal justice system. And for now, for over 200 years, they have not done anything. And they're saying that they're doing, they're attempting to fix this problems. They're doing more reports on it. But until the king government actually looks at their own legislation, like the Indian Act, for a good example, and actually attempt to actually make a step towards reconciliation instead of just going on record saying they're going to do something when in reality they're not doing anything. Until they do these steps, nothing is going to change. And the population, the prison population, is going to continue to grow and grow more and more with indigenous people. So to finish off the podcast, I just want to discuss why 
why the Canadian government might be doing this. One reason, and it's actually a pretty good reason that a lot of criminal criminologists might say that it's the reason for, is they're using the over-incarceration of this population as a form of crime control. The Canadian government thought, or during like the late 20th, late 1900s, there was a, the Canadian government implemented some tough on crime controls, meaning that there was mandatory minimums, and if you did a crime, then you, there was no, there was no gray area. If you did the crime, then you have to serve your time. You have to serve your time. The twenty-five years, if for murder or something, there was just no gray area. So by doing this with the indigenous uh, population, they were attempting to deter, uh, give the population a sense of responsibility. But it's it was long known before that that this. This is something, this actually doesn't deter crime. It doesn't reduce crime whatsoever. It has to be remembered that crime is a social construction. Okay? As Chrissy said, crime does not exist. It only, only acts, acts exist. Acts often given different meanings with various social frameworks. So these tough on crime rhetorics allowed for something that's called the prison industrial complex to thrive. So basically what the prison industrial complex was is, is when a set of government, private, and corporate interests, they develop policies and practice to serve their own needs. Some of these needs that they attempt to control is... They want to exert social, political, and economic control. It allows for the government just to have more control over their people. And by having tough on crime uh, laws that are really discriminatory towards populations such as indigenous people who have, like I said, have intergenerational trauma, it's literally preying on the, this population, this group of people just to have more control and that's just simply wrong and that's all stems from the government itself so you have so now like i said now you have a population that just makes up four percent of the entire canadian population but they make up more than 23 percent of the overall federal incarcerated those numbers don't add up, guys. And this is all this is all because of the Canadian government and the racism, the intergenerational trauma, and the low socioeconomic status. All these factors are directly caused from the Canadian government. That's all I have for you guys this week. Thank you for listening. This has been the Critical Criminology Podcast. For April second, two thousand twenty one. Noah Sweeting. Have a good have a good week.